I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello and welcome to Red Box, the politics podcast on The Times. I'm Matt Chorley, back for another episode of Political Debate, Insight and Gossip, despite a million people signing a petition calling for me to be banned. We've kept out any bad dudes, but an impressive lineup of guests have fought their way through our tough vetting procedures to seek refuge in the Red Box studio. Joining me this week are legendary documentary maker Michael Cockwell, who lists the lid on decades spent trying to get a politician to answer a question, Times senior political correspondent and podcast regular Lucy Fitch, will cast an eye over the imminent political battles you might not have noticed. And we welcome to the Red Box family Ian Martin, who's just joined the Times as a columnist. And he's going to be talking about a man you might have seen in the news called Donald Trump. Welcome to you all. Before we begin, a reminder to subscribe to the podcast on your Android device or on iTunes, where if you post a review, we promise to have you exempted from the ban on listening to next week's show. And if you don't receive my morning email briefing, I'm not sure we can be friends. So sign up now at thetimes.co.uk forward slash red box. Right, let's get started with Michael, a man who's made a dozens of documentaries on the great offices of state, the whips, the civil service, the commons, and in the 1990s, a documentary called How to Be a Prime Minister. But today we ponder how to be a journalist interviewing a prime minister. I wanted to talk about the love-hate relationship that British prime ministers have had over the years with television. I've been lucky enough to film our last nine prime ministers, and I recognise that Theresa May's uncomfortable refusal to give a straight answer to a question on what she thought about President Trump's refugee policy is only the latest in a long line of prime ministerial embarrassments on camera. Thanks for the the earlier introduction. Um, Thanks for the obituary. (laughs) I've been in the coffin and hearing the obloquy or whatever it is. Yeah, I'm lucky enough to have interviewed the last nine prime ministers. And I've watched as their their relationship with television has changed over the years. I remember I once said to Margaret Thatcher, um, what do you think of these big set-piece TV interviews? And she said, I hate them. I hate them. I hate them. And interestingly, over the years, as television interviewers have got tougher in the way they do it, and uh, prime ministers themselves have had their own spin doctors and have tried to work out what kind of questions are going to be asked. I remember that, that Bernard Ingham used to play the, the role of the dreaded Sir Robin Day, and he was apparently much tougher than Robin Day and equally Alistair Campbell used to play the role in, in rehearsals for, with Tony Blair of Jeremy Paxman and was, was much tougher on, on Tony Blair than <laughs> even Paxman was so it's, it's interesting it's action and reaction uh, I remember once when I was on Panorama and Robin Day was going off to do an interview with Margaret Thatcher uh, he said why don't I ask Prime Minister what's your answer to my first question 
<laughs> and he, because she would have been rehearsing it with Bernard Ingham and uh, he knew that whatever he said she would come up with her pre-prepared sound bites I mean Mrs. Mrs. May has a, a new way of doing it which is the meaningless tautology <laughs> I mean I suppose tautology is Brexit is Brexit means nothing or what do you think of um, President Trump's ban on immigrants for, from a number of Muslim countries the Americans have their way of running their, their their immigration policy. We have our way of running our immigration policy. What do you think of it? <laughs> and then she repeats it, yeah. this, which is an interesting way of doing it. But at least, I suppose it's a sort of answer. I mean, some of the some of the answers that she's given in some of her set-piece interviews with, to Andrew Marr or Robert Peston um, haven't been answers at all. They answered a completely different question from the one she's asked. I remember towards the end of last year, and unfortunately I can't remember who the, the name of the academic, but somebody done in, who had repeatedly done academic studies of politicians and the way they avoid answering questions, and he'd had to create a whole new category for Theresa May. Because <laughs> it wasn't that she was avoiding the question mm. as such, but she would give... She would sort of talk around the subject. So at mm. the first glance, it sounded like she'd answered yes. it. But actually, it was a sort of separate issue that she was sort of addressing so our, you know the the donald trump one is a sort of uh, separate point but asked what do you think about the new american immigration policy she says the u.s immigration policy is the u.s is a matter for the u.s which sort of sounds like she's out which is not really it's just a sort of diversion tactic how do you think she sort of ranks compared to other uh, the other prime ministers that you've uh, is she more tricky yes that's a, a very good question i mean sh- she's sort of uh, in a, just about in in, in a post paxman era there aren't that many people although there's some of the some of the guys and women coming up you know like um sophie ridge asking that very good question about what to to theresa may about uh, what she thought about donald trump's approach to women and um that he liked to grab them by the pussy uh, or as sophie ridge ridge herself said like to grab them by the pussy <laughs> she, she, couldn't, she couldn't actually say it, but but Theresa's um, Theresa May's face as she was asked that question was a wonderful basilisk of stone. That face set in stone. I mean, I, I go back right the way, not in not in terms of having interviewed him, but in in terms of um, Anthony Eden in in 1951 during the 1951 election was asked by the the BBC's then top interviewer, a guy called Leslie Mitchell. Sir Anthony, you're a world expert on world affairs, yet you're equally at home, at home. So where am I to start the interview? (laughs) (laughs) Well, could we start abroad? (laughs) Yes, sir. Um, Compare that to, say, Robin Day, about 25 years later, talking to Ted Heath, where he said, that wasn't even 25 years, it was uh, 15 years later, he said, Mr Heath... How low does your popularity have to sink among your own supporters before you consider yourself a liability to the party you lead? Good question for Jeremy Corbyn. And, <laughs> <laughs> and um, he said, well, popularity isn't everything. <laughs> and he managed to win the, 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 the next general election by being significantly less popular than the Tories were in the polls. So maybe he was right. Um, Michael, I just wanted to ask you, do, do you think that there is you can get something of the essential essence of a person through television? Or, or, or is it just that some people have a better talent for appearing authentic, but actually they've just had great training and the sort of personality where they can, they can put it on? Once you can fake sincerity, you've got it made. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 
you can learn certain techniques on television. You can learn to, to get used to the cameras, to relax in front of the cameras. But I think that television is a very good portrayer of character, especially over, over the months and the years. You actually do get a strong sense of their character, whether they're straight or not, whether they're decisive, a whole range of things. And if you're lucky enough as I have been over the years, to, to make a number of um, documentaries about um, many of our leading political figures, and you film with them over a period of, of weeks and in different circumstances. You take them back to where they were at school or university or where they were, where they were born, and you, you, get, you get different stimuli which uh, releases different things about them. And also, one of the things I've often done is to show them clips of their past life. So, uh, And that really opens them up. I remember when I was doing a film with Ken Clark, he said, so what, how are you going to do this? I said, well, there'll be film of you, which we've got going back quite a long way, some of which you may never have seen before. So just want you to react naturally. He said... You mean you want me to sit here and shout at the television like I do at home? <laughs> I said, you've got it in one. But it does, because they start thinking of themselves. Jim Callaghan, when we had some film of him as a very junior transport minister who introduced um, pedestrian crossings, and, and he, he was about sort of 26 or 27, and he said, what an interesting young man, whatever happened to him? But they're all thinking about, you know... Our recherche de temps perdu, and it opens them up. Do you, do you think the problem with Theresa May, though, Michael, might be that she actually really, you know, on quite a basic level, lacks confidence? She's quite a shy, quite reserved person, not very good at spontaneous remarks. And it just, that hesitancy really showed, in particularly in the interview in Turkey, or the press yes. conference in Turkey, where... And even the one in, in Dublin last night, and she really w was very unsure of what she was going to say, and she, her, her mouth turned down as well, because televisions are very much a medium of impressions, and you do see, uh, you do get a, a strong sense of what they're like, especially under pressure. But I think, I think you're right. I think she, people who, who know her well say that, that, that she's, she's not very self-confident, and she's certainly rather cautious, and she's suddenly been thrown in. I mean, if you think of her last few days um, going to, to see Trump um, address the, the Republican convention, effectively, conference, uh, and then, then off to Turkey, and then in Dublin, uh, having been in Cardiff with the, the leaders of the devolved assemblies. Um, it's amazing that she's been thrown into this. It's the, it's the normal life of a prime minister, but I think the way they they run a prime minister's life, they, 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 there's almost a, a, a kind of machismo thing that, that you have to be able to fly overnight and then have a meeting with someone like Erdogan. It's terrible but it preparation might, for it. In some way, though, Michael, it might actually explain part of her appeal to voters, don't you think, in that she's not slick and perfect and a little too clever by half in the way that, for example, Blair was. Blair Even was David Cameron even David Cameron, but Blair was particularly good at that response. And voters have got very used to that in the last 20 mm. years and maybe don't particularly like it. So there's some, there is something authentic about her, but it does seem to keep, as you indicated, it keeps landing her in trouble. Yes, I mean, I, I would hate it uh, if uh, 
you thought that I, I thought she, that she should be slicked up. I'd like to, to, <laughs> to see her, yeah. um, you know, to, to, with, with some of the human sides. And she looked, the point was when she came to, to power, she looked like a grown-up after all the, the shenanigans and, and the public school tricks that were going on in the, in, the, in the Tory leadership and everything like that. I think I'd, I've talked to some of her people that one of the things they said is, of course, we never really expected it to happen straight away. Yeah. You know, we, we were planning. They thought at the we very had... least they'd have the summer to prepare. Exactly. Or I, thought, I was struck, actually, that the um, the lobby briefing in Parliament yesterday where journalists go every day and they can at least ask questions of number 10, whether or not they get an answer is another point. And there was lots of questions about why the Prime Minister had been so slow to respond to the Trump policy and the response was you lot sit on your screen and go oh look at this on Twitter now she's got to be properly briefed and I can I can see where they're coming from that they don't want to lurch into the sort of David Cameron knee-jerk reaction to absolutely everything congratulating MOBO winners and all that sort of stuff but on the other hand they can't she's very controlling she wants to read the evidence before she comes to review but you can't do that with unexpected events and there's a balance that I think she's probably got to strike. Yes, I, I think that's right, um, and because I think the, the the public like least that either the not answering the question or coming up with um, the same sound bite, which had obviously been prepared, and they then use the same bite, sound bite for uh, for their next three answers. Like Brexit means Brexit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I think that Theresa May has such an easy time of it because Jeremy Corbyn doesn't do a great job of holding her to account and while you know she she hesitates at the dispatch box you know she there's that slackness in the chamber now she's not kind of having to bounce off someone high impact um high energy with david cameron had to be slicker because he was up against ed Miliband, who did quite a good job and had ed balls next to him and, and great repartee and, and witticisms and there's none of that now yeah, i think i think that's right um and she did manage brilliantly to to destabilise him of last week's PMQs when she came up with it with with the white paper that, that she was going to have the white paper and that was his whole <laughs> when you're going to have it so he then says oh, well, what day is it going to be <laughs> so let's move on now to someone who's not afraid to indulge in a little bit of straight talking Ian you want to talk about uh, events across the Atlantic. Yeah, I, I want to pose the question, is Trump winning? Because you've got here uh, in the UK and in the US, you've got protesters filling the streets. Well, you know, some of the streets. But I just think it might be worth entertaining the possibility that the people who voted for Donald Trump in the uh, American election last year actually rather like what he's doing. So we've had these extraordinary protests. I mean, actually, you know, the number of people who turned out in Whitehall last night with 24 hours notice in reaction to a policy which well, have affected all, very many of them. You know, it's a long way away. And, you know, we're not one of the countries which were affected, we're told. And yet there is this sort of very angry reaction almost to everything that Donald Trump says and does. His supporters point out that actually what he's doing is just an extension of what Barack Obama had put in place, you know, yes. some of the controls on some of those some of the countries affected but your point is that actually he's not trying to win over he doesn't care. placard wielding uh, brits he's delivering on what was his he, he deliberately promise. doesn't care i mean i'm no fan of donald trump spent a lot of time there during the u.s election every time i went over there i was convinced by smart republicans that of course he would be knocked out and rubio would stop him and then it was going to be Cruz, and then it was going to be someone else, and <laughs> Fiorina, and then it wasn't, and suddenly it was him, and then, of course, he wouldn't, couldn't win the general election, and he did. So I'm, I'm very worried by quite a lot of what he's, what he's doing. But I think, and if you talk to, as I did recently to, um, well, the last 24 hours, to someone who's close to the administration, I don't think they're, 
applying the normal rules. I think his measurement is quite simple. It is in those states where he won, what are his numbers like? He knows that he's never ever going to win California. Or he knows he's never going to win um, win in Manhattan or in London, and actively doesn't care. And it sends a signal to um, it sends it, it sends a signal to his base that, as far as they're concerned, he's annoying the right people. This is, I think, and remember, this is only ten days into this guy. It's, it's amazing, like 10, 11 10 days. days it was like ten years, but. Um, I think this then that then raises the question about those who want to block him or hold him to account or theoretically defeat him at some point, either at the midterms in less than two years or in four years' time at the at the general election, need to, in a sense, calm down and think and think <laughs> how do you respond to this? Yeah. It is quite likely that what emerges on the back of the the protest movement is something bigger than just a usual protest movement. That it is a, a a dump Trump movement which can attract middle ground mainstream support that seat there seems to be some suggestion of that happening in the US That's certainly the case in in London uh, and places like Glasgow last night where there were big demonstrations it needs to just be more than left-wing radicals demonstrating and practical reality in the US is that nothing and nothing Britain does will make any difference to this is that it has to produce a person a candidate yeah and actually it's, it's the being it was the total absence of a candidate of a decent candidate yeah. in the Republicans all the Democrats that actually cleared the way for you well, a Democrat friend of mine said to me they've got to think completely out of the box they can't just have one of these anonymous people who've made no impact at any point in the last couple of years Obama hasn't left a next generation the Democrats are in serious trouble if you look at um the number of governors that the Republicans now have, have both houses, have the presidency, obviously. They're going to almost have to out-Trump Trump. I mean, someone suggested the name Oprah Winfrey. To yeah. Me, but, you know, we laugh, but then we laughed at Trump <laughs> six months ago, a year ago. Anymore. We don't laugh yeah, at anything. Yeah. I, you know, I draw the line at maybe Kim Kardashian, but it's it, that the movement is only going to be effective if, if it turns into something which can translate itself into a practical political campaign. Michelle Obama would be the, the person to go for it. She's, uh, she's so popular and she looks so wonderful on all those shows that she appears on. To what extent do you think she might fall foul of the... I mean, she doesn't have the same negative baggage as uh, Hillary Clinton, but it would have, have the same problem with it being, you yes. know, the dynasty, the, you know, my turn, what, you know, Washington bubble... Mm. Yep. issue that Hillary just could never shake off and she she has uh, very specifically said that she wouldn't do it um, but we've all heard that people before people always <laughs> can talk their way out of that it's, it's just you need someone with charisma and uh, attractiveness and, and someone as Ian is saying um, uh, a bit different from, from these extraordinary dull people on both sides I mean it was particularly striking during the Republican primaries just how there was Trump and then sort of eight or nine yes. identical they had the same haircut, they had the same suits, they, you know, they came out with all the same stuff. But they were differentiated because Trump had a different, perfect set of insults mm. for each one of them. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> little, little marker. <laughs> little marker, exactly. But it also has to be someone who can appeal very specifically in those states that won it for Trump, which is that the, incredible to think in places like Michigan that Donald Trump beat the Democrats. So it's got to be someone that can actually plug back into this effect white um, working class or middle class in American terms voters and reconnect with some message some message on the nation state the economy jobs I mean, ultimately I think 
what it's really going to come down to and what the voters who are going to decide this in the US are going to make their minds up based on the economy. And if the economy really booms, which it might do, what could possibly go wrong at the end of that, then he's even more difficult to defeat. But extraordinary things are happening in the US where you now see Apple are moving all their call centre jobs back. There's a huge push by CEOs to announce, to, in a rush to announce US jobs. So he's doing stuff that underneath the, the outrage and the international bafflement, he's doing stuff that is going to connect in Michigan and in Texas and in um, North and South Carolina. Lucy, there's a, there is a sense, Ian's touched on it there, that if you sort of took the very sharp edges off some of the stuff he's doing and actually the mm-hmm. way he announces things and he goes on Twitter and explodes every time somebody criticises him, actually if you took all of that there there could potentially be quite a politically successful occupant of the White House there. If he, if he is delivering on the jobs, he's delivering on the immigration policy he promised. Yes. That makes him a success. Yes. And in fact, I mean, uh, I think the interesting thing you're talking about, even with these edges, that, that, as you describe it, Matt, I mean, perhaps that is part of the success. You know, that sets him up in contrast to the liberal metropolitan elite who, in the wake of the global financial crash, you know, people think are still running the show, rigging international free trade for their own ends against the little people. I mean, that is part of the success. And it's interesting, as we see kind of from the Women's March on the day after the inauguration to yesterday's scenes um, across the UK and, and around the rest of the world of people protesting, I just wonder if that as well is, is part of the strategy, the sort of the clever Steve Bannon sort of provoking that outrage. Actually, that distances that sort of progressive liberal cause from the majority of people who care about earning a decent wage, having maybe a car, a TV, a holiday. They're not people who would not ordinarily take to the streets they don't fit in and they don't like that sort of identity of of protesters so whipping up this outrage among sort of what what as you describe uh, ian the radical left and even possibly more center ground people i think that probably only distances and alienates the majority of middle america from the democrats and from that sort of liberal liberal cause michael just going back to what we were talking about at the beginning and, and answering a straight question it really struck me during the press conference with theresa may where there were only four questions, I think, and uh, Laura Coombs, both from the BBC, got a bit of criticism for daring to pose a difficult question to him. And one of them was making the point about what he'd said about torture and should people back in the UK, but also in America, be worried about his view on that. And instead of avoiding it and doing a Theresa May, he took it head on and said, I still think that torture works, but I've appointed a general. He says it doesn't. He's in charge. So I bow to his authority. And actually, I was really struck just in that press conference, what a really quite clever communicator he is, mm. which isn't the sort of the caricature of him that we sometimes that we sometimes get. Yeah, I, I think the caricature of him is is not that. I mean, it's the most other leading politicians. What do people object to? The fact he never answers the question, or she never yeah. answers the question, or she comes up with the the the, the pre-prepared. Sound bites. He he doesn't do that. He um, most of the time he uh, sounds as if he's saying what he believes. Uh, although when you go through it, it, often he's contradicted himself uh, in the previous or in the next <laughs> press conference. Like uh, as you say, the, he, the defence secretary. I've appointed the defence secretary. He has a different view. I defer to him. That obviously didn't uh, carry through till yesterday when he <laughs> acting <laughs> deputy attorney general. Oh, you. You don't agree with me, you're out. Yeah, and and there are there are hundreds and hundreds of examples of this uh, over the years with him. But he does, 
uh, I mean, he does as far as a journalist is concerned. He's he's perfect because he, um, <laughs> he gives a, gives you an answer to the question. He's definitely good for trade. Uh, I'm almost certain we will turn to. Uh, Don- Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quinn's is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Donald Trump in the coming weeks. Uh, but Lucy, let's focus on politics slightly closer to home. The political gods have smiled and granted us in February not one but two by-elections, the finest and most idiosyncratic of all Westminster's travelling circus acts. As well as paving the way for endless vox pops, sketches, colour pieces and photo ops, these two battles might actually tell us something about Labour's electoral prospects. So Lucy, Jamie Reid stood down in Copeland, Tristram Hunt stood down in Stoke-on-Trent Central to go and work at the V&A. And these are interesting because Tory's potentially in a good shout in Copeland, but Stoke-on-Trent Central is potentially more interesting because UKIP are, have got a serious challenge there and Paul Nuttall, the new UKIP leader, is standing there as the candidate. Yes, that's that's absolutely right. I mean, I uh, I love a by-election. I think it's sort of the <laughs> political class of Westminster split into two types, those that find them tedious and the idea of getting on a train to get outside London is ooh, <laughs> nightmarish and um, the likes of me and Michael Crick who sort of live for the, the local thrills. Um, so yeah, I think Stoke-on-Trent seems to me the slightly more interesting uh, of the two, although they both test Labour in different ways. Stoke-on-Trent uh, is the most Eurosceptic city in the UK, 70% voted out. And what I also think is really interesting about this seat is that it's incredible levels of apathy in the general election. Fewer than 50% of the electorate bothered to turn out to vote in 2015, but 66% turned out for the EU referendum. So they were galvanised by the issue of the EU. And UKIP is standing Paul Nuttall, their leader, that underlines their confidence there. Jeremy Corbyn's sort of tortuous policies on on, um, Brexit and immigration, whether he's sort of totally for freedom of movement or he sort of could could envisage some sort of controls whether article 50 should be you know it could be a free vote no actually it's going to be a three line whip unclear about whether people will have to resign although though two labor front benches already have uh, and now the suggestion is that others um, will have to if they want to vote against it i think that's all going to play out on the ground and and it's a test for ukip if they can't win here in such a eurosceptic place they're they're in trouble aren't they yeah it's it's, it's interesting how 
their test for all of the parties in a way is to see whether or not they can deliver because politicians always say I'm only interested in one poll and that's the one on election day which is why actually I, I'm, I'm with you on by-elections they are at least a test of the public mood at that time and we saw what happened in Richmond that Zach Goldsmith quit as the Conservative MP there and he wants to basically have a referendum on Heathrow and the Lib Dems successfully turned it into a referendum on Brexit and, and won the seat. Michael where, where do you stand on the, um, on the by-election debate? Uh, I love by-elections. Uh, I, <laughs> <laughs> I used to go um, and make um, behind-the-scenes uh, by-elections films, which could only go out on the night uh, just after the polls closed. But you could get amazing stuff, and you would keep it in the camera until until it went out. <laughs> and, and I remember um, Dick Taverne, uh, the, the famous uh, by-election as, as it then was in 1973, when he he was uh, a prototype of the Social Democratic Party because he resigned uh, uh, over Europe because his constituency in Lincoln, like, like now, was 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 Eurosceptic, and he was he was very pro-European. It was on the question of whether you you were going to vote for us to go into the then common market but he he had got in 10 years earlier at a by-election and he said I love by-elections you learn more about politics and and uh, how good you are at connecting with people making speeches on the stump making speeches at set meetings doing interviews in those kind of three weeks of of, of a by-election than you ever do in a general election because the, the, the spotlight is not on you in the same way if, it, if it's a high-profile by-election and, and because during a general election the the air campaign of the party leaders Absolutely. that sort of takes over and yes will decide the, the outcome yes. far more I, Ian. I do love by-elections but a particularly niche kind of by-election in that i love Scottish by-elections, which I was raised <laughs> on. Ah, so in the 90s... Very the, specialist. The Scots absolutely, <laughs> you know, were brilliant at by-elections. Things like Perth and Kinross, where the Nationalists made their great, made a great sort of advance, or Monklands East when, just after John Smith had died, which was actually pretty horrible, really, with Helen Liddell and the SNP and a sectarian crazy backdrop. And it just was a circus but I, I generally think I agree with Lucy I think they I think they really test people uh, I think they're good for the media too often we're we're stuck in we're stuck in London and need to need to get out more and uh, and just just encounter the the sheer silliness and uh, <laughs> and madness of the of the election trail and you'd also then see the, the joy of national politicians who would really rather be spending their time in television studios or hobnobbing with the uh, liberal elite, having to actually put on, you know, <laughs> put, speak in events at uh, in rather less glamorous situations and, and and face the public and be trailed around by um, Lucy and Michael Crick. And I think it's uh, terrifically important. And there's no greater corrective for. Well, not just politicians, but political journalists as well, who are convinced that the entire nation hangs on their every word and thought <laughs> to uh, turn up in a sort of drizzly high street somewhere and spend an hour asking people what you think about the by-election. I said, the what? The by the what? And discovering that actually this, the, the, their hard hard work up until that point has, has gone largely unnoticed by people who are going about their daily lives. And I think that uh, that's probably always good for people. Ian, UKIP, where do you sort of see them post-Brexit. Are they capable of creating the sort of momentum that the SNP did having... They actually lost the re referendum, but then yep. sort of swept the board. Or have they lost their sort of raison d'etre? This is... I mean, the by-elections will tell us a lot about that, because I, I was one of those people that thought on the back of the Brexit result you know, Labour is dead in Scotland, in real trouble in the North, and that it would then have UKIP 
on its tail and that UKIP would turn that it turn its sort of 12 13 14% of the vote into a solid vote and maybe win the odd season events like this i think that the difficulty that uh, paul nuttall has is it's just difficult to get beyond farage i mean the guy is <laughs> he's, he's he, i mean he's he's doing an alex Salmond in that he's retired but he's not really retired he's all over tv and um and radio he's he's playing a part in a inherently ridiculous way in the trump story and i think if you were to ask most voters who's the leader of UKIP it would probably it would probably they'd probably still say Nigel um, Farage because he's resigned and then um, stood again so many so many times so there's a they wouldn't say a, Diane James precisely <laughs> I don't think anyone I've forgotten about Diane James but I think yeah, haven't we all I think I think they have a real identity problem there which is added to by the, the fact that you've then got Farage's friends people like Aaron Banks so it's not clear precisely what they're going to do with their money and their support are they going to start some new populist party which they've made reference to or are they going to put money behind ukip so it's a it's a little more fragile for them than it it looks as though they were set for significant success after after brexit but maybe their work is done i must admit i was i was struck uh, even watching the tv news last night and there was a piece on article 50 in the debate in parliament and it included a clip with nigel farsh and yeah. i just thought why why is a local radio <laughs> disc jockey being interviewed on on that basis rather than paul nuttall or of course uh, the, the interesting thing in, in in is if paul nuttall wins he will win uh, at his first parliamentary try, you know, as poor old Nigel Farage tried about eight times. Eight times, <laughs> and still without success. Still without success, so there'll be a wonderful irony there. Also, it's made much easier for him, uh, uh, for Nuttall, uh, because the Labour Party, uh, in their infinite wisdom, probably with, with, on instructions from uh, the brain god, Corbyn um, <laughs> have chosen uh, an ardent Remainer as their candidate in the in the most um, genius <laughs> Eurosceptic seat in the country. Yeah, and, and the argument was that he wasn't. He, he was the most appropriate person they'd got on the shortlist, which for me <laughs> suggests they probably needed a new shortlist. Is rather there a, an argument that sort of suggests people were thinking about it? Or? Well, that, that <laughs> is true. That is true. But Lucy, one of the things, and Aaron, there's, there's this question of Nigel Farage and what he does with Aaron Banks, the donor, mm-hmm. and all that. But actually, the the problem with the Nigel Farage UKIP is it was all Nigel Farage mm-hmm. and media and causing outrage with by appearance on the TV. The thing they were really bad at was the nuts and bolts building a party structure that made sure they didn't have nutters selected as candidates in for council elections and you know knowing which doors to knock on and which you know which to avoid and all that sort of stuff and actually for them to properly build a campaign in Stoke-on-Trent Central or a proper ground war they need to get better at that stuff do you, is there any sign that they are capable of doing that or do they just end up thinking actually we've got Paul Nuttall on the telly again so that's a win well, actually, I think that UKIP have got better over the years at a by-election. And in fact, by-elections are quite easy compared to a general election because you can just flood a seat, yeah. as the Lib Dems did in Richmond, with all your activists and you're not sort of spread too thinly. So I think that's what the problem. I think you're right that they have this a lack of um, structures underpinning the party. But again, I think that that's something with time, and that's a sort of one of the tickets on which Paul Nuttall was elected leader, promising to professionalise the party. That's something that can be fixed. I think the much bigger problem is is what Ian identified, and that's the identity crisis. Uh, and as you say, Farage had become a sort of demagogic figure, and he kept together these disparate factions through a sort of series of stick and sort of famous temper and sort of keeping people in check. But also, he people looked up to him. He'd become this icon, this figurehead. 
and everyone in the party really agrees he has taken them from sort of nothing fringe movement to being sort of centre stage or or at least part of the mainstream now. But I wonder, I think one of the, the biggest missteps or perhaps the thing I find most baffling is why Paul Nuttall is following uh, Nigel Farage's footsteps in yoking the party to Trump. It makes sense to me why Fr- Nigel Farage is doing that. You know, he thinks he might have a job or he's got this in, the Donald's his new mate. But why... <laughs> Why Paul Nuttall saying, well, yes, you know, I think, you know, maybe torture is a good idea. And sort of, (laughs) of, you know, I I find that baffling. I think pretty soon Paul Nuttall will be saying that torture is a good idea, but only for Nigel Farage. Yeah, I think think that's a very, you know, I think it's a really good analysis. And the great prize, of course, for the Conservatives and this is what the, the Tory strategists know, is that all they need to change the electoral map, really, is to take back four, five, six percent, to sort of half the UKIP vote, to get them from around 12 to seven or eight, and to convert those voters back into being Conservatives or Conservatives for the first time. And the Conservatives go from being 36 percent, as they were under David Cameron, to somewhere in the 40, 41 percent zone. So I think that helps to explain why quite a lot of Prime Minister's words on Brexit means Brexit, etc. But that, I think that's why she's holding quite firm. There's a great electoral prize, and Labour in its current state is certainly not going to hoover up any um, any UKIP votes. And if I don't think they know where the Hoover is. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a great, it's a terrific opportunity strategically for the for the Conservatives. Well, I'm afraid we've got to leave it there. We're um, out of time. As ever, please do re- leave a review on iTunes, and we'll um, read out some of the best and the worst in the coming weeks. You can get in touch by emailing redbox at thetimes.co.uk, and you can tweet us at timesredbox or find us on Facebook. And again, sign up to my morning email briefing at thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox. But for now, from Lucy Fisher, Michael Cockwell, Ian Martin, and me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk.